Support for today's episode of the Woj Pod comes from Wix.com. With Wix, you can create your very own professional website. Choose a template you love and customize it by adding your own text, images, and video. With hundreds of intuitive design features, you can tell your story exactly the way you want. Want even more for your website? You can easily start a blog, launch an online store, or create an event. Share everything in a click on social media, and even drive more traffic to your site with SEO tools to get found on Google. Wix has all the tools you need to create the exact website you want. You can even create a beautiful website while listening to this podcast. Over 140 million people choose Wix to create their website. Create yours today. Get started now by going to Wix.com. That's W-I-X.com slash Woj, W-O-J, to get 10% off. Here in Charlotte at the site of the 2019 NBA All-Star Game with Atlanta Hawks GM Travis Schlenk. Travis, how are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Thanks for jumping in. I mean, Travis, like this is the All-Star Weekend. People think about the Sunday night game and the players who are there. They're the best of the best in the world. But I think part of the reason we see so many front office executives here, teams with young players, because you've got guys in Rising Stars, you have guys in the Saturday night contests and most, a lot of you guys will clear out by Sunday's game, right? But it's for you to get John Collins and Trey Young and to get those guys on this stage and in this atmosphere and start for them to develop a little bit of a help kind of build their stature in the league. It's, it's got to have value for the Hawks for, for rebuilding teams. Yeah. No question. You know, last year we were fortunate enough to have two guys in this game as well. Torian Prince and John Collins out in LA this year, as you mentioned, we have John and Trey in the game and then John's going to be in the slam dunk contest. Trey's in the seals contest. Um, you know, for us, we only had one national TV game this year. Uh, that was early in the season. So it really puts these guys in a national spotlight. You know, we've the last 25, 30 games, we're close to a 500 basketball team um, so we're showing real signs of growth uh, we're very pleased with where the team's headed and so it's great that the city of Atlanta the Atlanta Hawks get some exposure this weekend at all-star weekend Travis when, when you undertake the project like you are in Atlanta and listen if you're going to rebuild if you're gonna try to reboot a franchise you love the idea of having draft picks to do it with and you had three of the top 30 last year and then this year potentially two in the top 10 the ability to have the picks to not only having the picks, but having cap space, which can allow you to get more picks through trades, taking in contracts into your space. You know, you saw Brooklyn do that. Brooklyn had no picks over the time and used their ability to use their space with sign free agent players and then trade them and, and get assets. But for you guys to be able to speed this process up, uh, the value of having the picks and the chance to, to really sort of start from to have a vision of the kind of guys you want and the ability to go get them in a 24-month period is is pretty rare. Yeah, when I first got hired, you know, we sit down and we took a look at where the franchise was. Um, they had gone from 60 wins to 48 wins to 42 wins. Um, and at that time, I believe they were the fourth oldest team in the league. Um, so we just felt like that that group had kind of peaked. Um, and they're on the way down. Uh, we had a couple guys who were free agents that summer, uh, Paul Millsap and Tim Hardaway Jr. You know, and we made the decision that, uh, we weren't, weren't gonna sign those guys to long-term contracts, uh, and we were gonna hit the reset button. 
and we had cap space that first summer that we were able to use. And as you mentioned, we went out and got a couple picks. We got a first round pick and a deal uh, with the Clippers. Uh, and we got a couple second round picks through other deals we did with our space. Um, listen, there's three ways to acquire players in this league, right? Through the draft, uh, through free agency, uh, and then trades. And so we try to use all three of those, uh, and where we are right now with our space, we're using that space to go out and acquire picks. Um, and those picks are useful, obviously, in the draft. But at some point, you know, we'll use those picks to go out and acquire a player as well uh, whenever whenever we decide that, that that's the right time for us. That's what we'll do. Travis, you, before you were hired in Atlanta, you had interviewed for other GM jobs and, you know, and you interviewed at a time when the warriors dynasty had really taken off like there were years of where you were getting you know the infrastructure was being put in place and then the winning started and then obviously it's gone to another level with kevin durant since he signed there but when you would go through the process and the curiosity listen people want to hire generally owners want to find a model out there that they can build off of what would be the questions you would get when when you'd go in to talk about what you had done with the Warriors, what was the level of – everybody wants to know what the blueprint of it was. And it was – as much as anything, it was drafting really, really well. What kind of stuff would you get from owners about what you guys had done there? You know, I think – well, in particular with the Atlanta group, um, I'm very fortunate. And I really got excited about the job when I had the chance to meet the ownership group uh led by Tony Ressler, Grant Hill, uh, Rick Snell, Stephen Price. Really good group of guys. And I think what they were really searching for was just a, a plan and a strategy. So when I went in to interview with them, you know, they, they obviously they ask you about the players on their current roster, what you think of those guys. Um, they ask you, you know, for where they are, what you think the best approach is going to be. Um, you know, coming up... You know, as you know, I started off in the video world and then I was assistant coach, um, and then came to the front office side of things late in the NBA. Um, so I really had a track record, uh, on the scouting side of things and, you know, going down the path that we just chose to go down to rebuild. I think that, that, that helped me a lot with the track record I had in the player personnel evaluation with these guys. Um, so I think that was a big thing for them is just, wanting to understand, you know, my thought processes, how I viewed building a team. Um, you know, one of the things that was extremely important to us in Golden State and obviously is important to us now in Atlanta is just the person, trying to understand who the person is, um, high character people. Uh, I've been on coaching staffs where you had guys that were just made it miserable to show up every day in the locker room. And I'm sure you've covered teams like that. And, you know, one bad apple really can bring down the whole bunch. So we, we put a, a huge focus on who the person is when we're out there drafting players, signing free agents, uh, things of that nature. We'll get back. I want to talk more about the Hawks and where you guys are in this process. But talk about Golden State and you think about, you know, there's like some seminal moments there, the drafting of Steph Curry. You know, a draft where you get Harrison Barnes, Festus Azili, and obviously Draymond Green. And, and people forget too, Festus was a really, when you were building that team, Festus really played, he was a late first round pick. He had a lot of value in the knee injuries, obviously set, took him out of his career, certainly. But when you think about the moments in Golden State and then Clay Thompson and, 
I remember that draft where he came in late. Remember the Spurs brought him in for a workout just a few days before. And I think the sense was they were going to maybe try to move up to get him. And there's always so much of that leading into the draft. Whenever you look back at these drafts, you think of all the what ifs. Like with Draymond, there's not an owner or GM in the league that doesn't have a what if scenario. Somebody in the room talks somebody else out of it. We were, they were all going to take him, but no one did, right? But when you think back to how that team got put together, are there one or two moments where you think, wow, that could have so easily gone the other way, but for good fortune, for obviously sound decision-making, we did that. Yeah, um, so one instance really stands out in my mind. I remember when I when I first went from the coaching side to the front office side, um, Larry Riley was the GM at the time. Uh, he came to me and said, hey, you know, I could really use you on the front office side. Don Nelson was the head coach. Now they came and talked to me, and he said, listen, I think you have a great eye for talent. I think you should go work in the front office. Um, and at first I was taken back, you know, my dream since I was a little kid growing up in Western Kansas of a town of 200 people was to be a, a, a coach. Um, and I, I thought I had a good eye for it, the X's and O's, but, uh, my wife and I had, we just had our first kid and I remember thinking to myself, well, there's a lot more, uh, stability on the front office side of things and they're on the coaching side of things. Maybe, maybe I should do this. Um, so we did it and I told Larry, we we're at the hoop summit up in Portland, um, and we were sitting in the XYZ bar out at the ALOS by the airport in Portland. I said, I'll come, I'll come to the front office side with you, but you got to promise, you know, we'll trade these two guys. Um, uh, we got to trade these two guys because, uh, you know, we had at the time we didn't have the world's best locker room and we had it at a young group of guys that we wanted to try to develop. And, you know, we, we both agreed that was going to be our plan, our strategy. Now it took us two years to do it, but we got it done. And then back to the original question of one moment, what really changed the course of everything. Uh, there was a trade that we wanted to do, Larry and I, and we were sitting down with the owner at that time, Chris Cohen. And we said, uh, you know, we think we should do this trade. Uh, we're getting back two guys, uh, freeze up our cap. It's going to allow the growth of Steph at the time was on mm -hmm. the team. And Chris said, we can't do that trade. Uh, player X is the most popular player we have and, uh, season ticket renewals around the corner. And I was just like, you gotta be kidding me. We're going to make this decision based on who our fans think should be on our team, not who the guys that you've hired to put together a team for you are. Um, this, so, this, was, this was the Bucks, right? Uh, no, this no, wasn't the, the Bucks. Bucks. I don't want to get named right. the players, but, yeah. uh, so we didn't do the trade. Uh, and then later on, we were able to do a trade with that player that mm -hmm. brought us, uh, Andrew Bogut. And that was obviously mm -hmm. a big piece of the championship puzzle. So, you know, as they say, sometimes the, the best deals you do, um, are the ones you don't do. Yeah, so. and even like in Golden State, I remember the summer when Kevin Love was available and, you know, Golden State had talked to Minnesota and Steve was just taking over as head coach, Steve Kerr, and it was a conversation. Clay knows, everybody knows it was, you know, there were some different opinions about it and people viewed Kevin Love in a level of, you know, he was an all-star and he was playing at a high level and the sense that I got in the end was what drove it was that Steve Kerr had wanted to coach Steph Curry and Clay Thompson together, and he took the job believing he was going to coach them. And that in the end, whatever different opinions were in there, that kind of ruled the day, right? That, like, this is what Steve wants to do. Let's not make such a dramatic change to this roster. That that was a significant part of the conversation, right? No, there was, it was definitely, um, you know, we had, we had a small group, um, but... 
you know, it was, it was a split group for sure. Uh, there were some people that felt very strongly that we should do that trade and there were others who felt like we shouldn't. Um, and I do, I remember this just as you said, clear as day, Bob and, and Bob's done obviously a great job there. Bob said, listen, we just hired this guy to coach our team. Let's let him coach the team. And, and that's what we rolled with. Um, so yeah, you're, you're right on point. And then another great example of a deal that a lot of people at the time said we were foolish not to yeah, do. I it mean, wasn't just split and it's easy with revisionist history to go back and go, well, that's obvious what you should have done. It's never obvious in the present. I mean, these are difficult, your jobs to see into the future, but you do the best you can with the information. And there were a lot of people around the league who, who I remember lots of people debating they should, they shouldn't. And you know, you have more intimate knowledge. You know Clay. You're with him every day. You knew what who he was and what he could be and what he brought. And you talk about how he fit with the team and the group and he and Steph. But and that brings you talk about the way Bob Myers leads the group there, and you are part of it. I mean, you think Bob Myers comes in and comes from an agent background, and you know has this. It's a strong group. You know, Joe Lake comes involved. Joe's got opinions, and Jerry West was there, and Jerry West has strong opinions and he's, he's maybe the greatest GM in history. And Jerry played a consultant's role there. And, you know, you're in there. And my observation has always been that Bob's ability to not care who got credit, to not ever be caught up with when a decision was made, that Bob was never running to say, hey, it was my decision. I was the one who wanted to do that or stop that, that it worked because Bob was always just about what's the best thing for the organization, and and I'm not worried about where the credit goes. Listen, I think, and the biggest thing that I've learned for Bob, and and I I think a lot of this comes from his background as an agent of, you know, being able to work with big personalities, Um, you know, being able to... be comfortable in his own skin, I guess is the best way to say it. Like he's, he, he is, he's one of the best I've ever seen at being able to walk into a room, read the room, understand the different players in the room and somehow make everybody feel good about the situation. Um, he, he's just an unbelievable people person. You know, it's funny too, how you had been in Golden State through a lot of frustrating years and trying to get the roster right and trying to figure out, you know, what the formula was there. And it was one of those places people always said, this is a sleeping giant of the NBA because your fan base was rabid, whether it was run TMC, whether it was down years, you know, whether it was the Baron Davis group that gets, you know, the fan base was so rabid there. I think there was always a sense if we could just get this right, this thing's a monster. And I think the people who work there always really felt that. No, I remember my first year there, 2004, I came from the Miami Heat, and in Miami we were winning, you know, division championships, you know, we're in the title conversation every year with Zoe and Timmy and obviously Pat um, leading the forces, and, you know, our games, we'd have, you know, no one would be in the stands in the first quarter in Miami, and we were a good team, winning 50 games every year. I got to Golden State, and, you know, they were winning 30 games every year. And there'd be 18,000 people there every night just waiting. And I, just as you said, I, I thought to myself, man, if we ever get good here, this place is going to go nuts. And we saw a sneak uh, peek of that during the We Believe Warriors. Mm-hmm. You know, we got hot that year, ended up the eight seed, and the Bay Area was just going crazy. And then obviously, you know, 2015 rolls around, and now you see what's happened in Golden State. Um I used to take a ton of pride uh, when I'd go to Europe scouting and you wouldn't see any 
Golden State Warrior stuff, but then by the end, everywhere you went in the world, you know, everybody had Golden State stuff on. Um, I, I, you know, 13 years I spent there, I think the, well, without question, the moment that stands out to me most, and obviously we had a ton of moments winning two championships and going to three finals in my time there, was during the first parade. And, you know, two million people show up in downtown Oakland and line the streets. And, you know, you're in a car and nobody knows who you are as an assistant general manager or anything like that, but people are yelling your name. Like, just the way the fans love that team, love that organization is certainly special. Got to catch the game on the go? No worries. Metro has you covered. Switch to Metro and get coast-to-coast coverage on a network that covers 99% of people in the U.S. Now you'll catch all the action almost anywhere you go. Plus, you'll save a ton over what you're paying with Verizon or the other big guy. Switch to Metro and get on a big network for way less. Coverage may vary, so please see the store for details. Now is the time to score big with Metro. Switch and get on a big network for way less. Metro by T-Mobile, that's genius. You know, guys who started the way you did in the video room in Miami, and you look at the guys who came out of those video rooms, Eric Spolstra, potentially a Hall of Fame coach with the Heat, and guy others people may not know, Adam Simon, who's an assistant GM there, who's been a big part of, you know, their success. And, and you come out of there that guys in the league, you know, Lawrence Frank started in the video room. And I mean, I remember as a pretty young reporter in New York sitting at press row at Knicks games and Spo was the advanced scout. He was on his way up and that everybody who came from that route, video room, and a lot of them into at the time advanced scouting, which is to me always the most grueling job in the NBA, right? Like you're on the road every night, you're filing your reports after the games, you're on to the next city, you know, you're giving the game plans for the team and you're, and you're really sitting back in the day when you could sit courtside at places and you could study the bench, you could hear the call a coach had on plays, you could study the body language of you might want to trade for a player and you're sitting there at the bench going, everybody on that team hates that guy. We're not trading for him. Now it's harder because they have those guys sitting up higher, and I think it's lost the value. But those guys would always say, Spo, any of them, that if you wanted to learn the NBA, you did it in the video room, and you did it in that advanced scouting, and that guys who came up that way felt like they just knew the league better than guys who maybe came in from other directions. Yeah, no, uh, listen – Without question, one of the biggest breaks, and I've obviously had a lot of good breaks go my way to get to being in this room with you today. Um, I tell people, you know, I got my undergrad from Bethel College, I got my master's from Wichita State, and I got my doctorates in the Miami Heat working for Pat Riley. You know, Pat's attention to detail, and when I was there, uh, the staff was just unbelievable. Obviously, Pat was a head coach, but you had Stan Van Gundy, assistant coach. You had Jeff Bizdelic, assistant coach. You had Eric uh, Spolstra, who was, you know, assistant coach, advanced scout. Mark Alvaroni was on that staff, and Bob McAdoo. So I was extremely fortunate to be around some really great coaches um, with, you know, the attention to detail off the charts. So you immediately get respect around the league from having worked in an organization like that and with those kind of people. Um, so that, that was obviously a huge break and, and, and you learn a ton, um, you know, going from the video room, going out to advanced scouting, like you said, like those guys are out there every night. They're getting the play calls. They're drawing up the plays. Um, so, so they get a ton of knowledge and it, it is, it's a grind, but you, as you mentioned, you do learn the league inside and out. 
Technology was different. You're not that old, Travis, but technology was different in the league. I feel old sometimes. <laughs> the technology of doing video, and now you can accomplish a lot more in a very quicker window of time than then, but, but explain what it meant to do video for Pat Riley. Like, tell me, you wake up when, you do what all day, you go to bed when. Um, so, you know, we got into office early. We were in there probably by 5, 530, uh, every morning. Um, you know, you're breaking down, you know, four or five games for every opponent, uh, labeling it all. Uh, the biggest thing about working for Pat was just the amount of information he wanted on every opponent uh, was just off the charts statistically. We had uh, Jordan Cohn, uh, one of the first teams to hire a full-time stats guy, and, you know, he had his computer program, and he watched, you know, 20 games on every team to come up with player tendencies, and um, Pat – took all that information and digested it. Um, you know, we had our defensive ratings. We had our offensive ratings that every every night, you know, Jeff Bezdelic would, would break down. And we'd have to uh, go to go to uh, FedEx same day, which is a service if you need to get a package. We'd get it done at 2 in the morning. And, you know, we'd take it out to the airport, and they'd put it on a commercial flight to get it right. to Pat the next day. Um, you know, working with VHS tapes as opposed to just downloading right. media. And, you know, now you can get the games already all cut up. You know, we had to go through, obviously, and cut it all up uh, so it it was there were long days there were a lot of times when you're in beautiful miami florida and you never saw the outside of american Airlines <laughs> arena <laughs> at that time you're thinking this is going to lead me to be able to get onto the bench i want to coach this is the way especially if you're not an ex-player players can come in and now they're going to have to doc rivers always he said something was really interesting to me once about you know people label and they can stereotype the way an ex-player might go about the job, the way somebody who didn't play goes about the job. And I think there's a sense with, let's say, guys who didn't play, you better have an edge in preparation, information. You don't walk up and command the room perhaps the way a guy who played. And But then the guy who played, is he going to always put the time in? And, and Doc said something interesting. He's like, the guys who didn't play have to learn how to relate with players. They have to learn to command that respect. And the guys who played have to learn about the hours they're going to have to put in. Because in. you could be the hardest working player in the league and you could be out of the building in four hours and work harder than every other player. You're talking about 16 hours, 17 hours. And his thing was, well, those guys have to learn the other end of it. And they're all going to meet in the middle and they're going to weed each other out. But from your perspective, like what you were doing, Spo was doing, thinking about the coaching track was – like, I have to convince Pat Riley or some other team that I've got the chops to sit on an NBA bench and then to stand in front of NBA players and command their respect. I think people underestimate how hard that is to do. Yeah. You know, the one thing about NBA players, and you know this, is they smell a fraud out real quick. They they can tell if you don't know what you're talking about. So when you're going through a walkthrough or you're you know leading them through a film session, if you don't have everything right, they'll know it because a lot of these players are smart. I mean, shoot, a lot of these players are really really bright players and they study the game and they, and they know play calls and they know player tendencies. And if you get that wrong, they'll know in a hurry. And you know if you mess up, they'll lose respect for you. So you got to be on top of it as a former player or as a non-player like you've got to, you've got to work hard to know your stuff Selden Kansas 200 people what's it like growing up in Selden Kansas and I wouldn't imagine the NBA was 
probably got the Bulls games from Chicago, right? Like on this, like it wasn't the NBA wasn't probably part of the daily conversation there. No, we. Uh, I was in. Uh, I don't know eighth grade. We got cable, twelve channels. Uh, one of them was WGN, so we got to watch uh, the Bulls games. We had TBS, so we got to watch Hawks games, uh, and that that was it. You know. Never once crossed my mind growing up uh, to work in the NBA or to be associated with the NBA and any, anything. Like I said, all, all I really wanted to do growing up was be a college basketball coach. Um, so, you know, went to college, obviously uh, played at Bethel College. Um, they told me to get a job in college. You needed a master's. So I went to Wichita State um, and I had to do an internship and at the time I was really into golf. So I had one professor, um, she was trying to get me to go do an internship with the PGA tour. Um, and I, uh, sent my resume out to a few NBA teams that had internship programs at the time in the mid nineties. And it really, it really was just dumb luck. I was offered positions in Miami, um, Washington and, uh, Orlando. And I chose Orlando cause I was working in basketball operations. Um, and I had no idea at the time, but at that time in the mid 90s orlando was really respected around the league as being on the cutting edge of the video uh editing world um steve giles was a video coordinator at the time tom sterner was assistant coach there and those two guys were seen kind of a, the cutting edge i had no idea about that i just went there because i thought it'd be cool to work in basketball operations um and after you know being there like a month i was like this is this is where it's at because it was pure basketball you know doing the scouting reports, breaking down the plays. I remember Eric Musselman was on staff when I was there and I'd go talk to him about, you know, just different pick and roll coverages and things like that. So it was, it was dumb luck. Um, but being in the right place at the right time for myself and another huge break for me that year, um, the league had moved the Chicago or not the Chicago combine, but the league meetings in, um, the fall to Orlando. So as an intern, I was able to go to the league meetings and just meet a bunch of people that if they would have been in Chicago like normal, it wouldn't have happened for me. So again, like I said, I, I've had a lot of things go my way that I had nothing to do with. I just happened to be in the right place at the right time. And, and that was a huge break for me. I think a lot of guys think about, they think becoming a college coach is accessible. I could go, maybe it's division two, maybe it's division three, but I can make a life as a coach. Maybe it's division one. There's more of the schools. Obviously, there's more opportunities. The NBA is really small fraternity, and there's every job's really hard to get, and, and they're hard to keep. But I've always sensed that the guys who've had the chance to be in both, that if you can be in the NBA, and that very few really want to go back to college. And I think part of it is there's so much stuff that you're at the mercy of, and it's obviously recruiting, and in many cases, what it takes to get players, what it takes. There's so many more variables that you can do a really good job and do it right and not have what's considered success. Where in the NBA, like the NBA, you have to pretend that graduation rates are important. In college, they make you pretend a lot of things are really important when only one thing's important, and that's winning. And at least in the NBA, it's all out in the open. We don't play make-believe like college does. And guys just... There's no ambiguity about what the job is. It is to win. And and if a player gets arrested in the NBA, they don't blame the GM. Typically, they don't blame the coach. It was the player. In college, if a guy gets in trouble, it reflects the coach, right? He's responsible for it. It's just the dynamic is so different. Yeah. You know, I worked as an assistant coach at Bethel College. Um 
And, you know, obviously in IA school and Saturday mornings, wake up at eight o'clock and you just start cold calling kids all across the country. And, you know, they'd never heard of your school talking to parents. Like it's, it's hard, man. It's hard recruiting to those schools. Um, and when I spent a year at the University of Georgia as director of basketball operations for a year, uh, you know, sending out um letters to all the freshmen and sophomores you know around the country like just you know cold calling cold letters like college recruiting it's a tough business man and it's 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 a different skill set for sure than the NBA in the aspect of you you have to be a great uh relationship person as a college coach uh, some of these college coaches I'm amazed with uh I'll meet them one time and they'll come back up to me 5 years later and they'll remember my name and I I I'm terrible with names I have a I have, I have a hard time remembering your name <laughs> if it wasn't <laughs> if it wasn't just Woj, I probably wouldn't remember it um but college coaches those guys they're unbelievable at remembering things like that uh and just constantly keeping the connections with people too. Mm-hmm. Like it's like a daily, they must have a list of a hundred people. They call every day just to try to build that relationships and hoping that that one kid comes along and that right. they'll have that relationship. Well, they always say like in college and it might even be true in the NBA in some respects with that. When you're calling people, when they don't have players for you is when it's really important. When a guy doesn't have a player for you, but you're reaching out and connecting because when they eventually do, they remember who called when they didn't. And that's takes a lot of persistence and a lot of blind faith that all this time is paying. That's what the frustration is. I remember Billy Donovan and I talked about this when he, after he came to the Thunder, that as you got older, you spent so much time on players you're never going to coach and that you sort of want that time back. And it's a waste of time. We're now in the NBA in the summer. He can go work out with Russell Westbrook. I remember the time did a podcast in LA and he was out working with Russ that week. And the idea that he could be with his player like that in the summer, get him better and just not spending all this time on recruiting guys who in most cases aren't going to come. Yeah, no question. Um, and just the, the amount of time you can spend with guys, right? Like you're limited in the amount of practice time you're going to have in the NCA. Uh, during the off season, you're limited to the amount of time you can make your team better for the next year. Um, never knowing if the guy is going to leave, uh, after the first year or second year. Um, so I, I, I do really enjoy the NBA side of it. Um, you know, where it's much more of a business. Um, but, you know, we don't have to recruit. You know, we get to pick. You know, this is the guy we want. Um, so it, it's certainly a much better, purer form of basketball to me. When you have multiple picks, when you have one pick, or you have second-round picks, and, you know, even when you don't have draft picks, you never know. You might end up with a couple by draft night, and you've got to be prepared for every scenario. And it was last year, remember, you had give me a heads up. You were flying um, to St. Bonaventure to – only in New York, in the middle of nowhere, in upstate New York, and it was a Davidson Bonaventure game and uh, triple overtime, triple overtime, right? And a 9 p.m. start. I remember that, right? And I remember you landed and you said, "Hey, did I fly into the right airport? Because it says it's like 90 minutes to campus." And I said, "No, no, you flew into the right one. There's no Buffalo. You got to fly into Buffalo, and and you can't mention them. Like you're not going to get banged for tampering here, but." You know, Davidson had a younger team and maybe a younger player there that some guys were down the road. And in Bonaventure had a player, Jalen Adams, who ends up being an undrafted player. You signed him to a two-way contract, and he just converted him last week the other day to, you know, for the year. And 
I know a lot of assistant GMs who've been to games in Atlanta. The hardest place of the league to get to. And if you want to see players in that league, you know, you could go see them in Philly. You can see them in Washington. You could see them in New York. I hadn't known a GM who would actually, because it's a whole day to get there and it's a day to get out. I think you were on your way to New York for conference tournaments. I showed it to my wife because we both went to school there. And I remember a text from you. I want to say about midnight. It was triple overtime. And I think I called you after to say, how did it go? I'd watch the game. So from Buffalo to Olean, you're going through the hills and it's dark and there's no lights and there's no signs. But there's lots of deer. (laughs) It was the last text you sent me. And I said, I hope these aren't Travis's last words. It was deer everywhere. And I was like, I hope he gets through the woods and makes it to the airport. But I showed it to my wife. We were laughing because we knew we had made that trip down. But in that job, you go and you see a guy play who he was undrafted and you were able to sign him after the draft and get him on a two-way and he goes to Erie and has a couple 40-point games and plays with you. And, and maybe he's a backup point guard for you down the road. You get a chance to look at him more now. But I would imagine there's a lot of nights like that, a lot of trips that don't pan out to anything. You go to places out of the way and you get there and you go, this was probably a waste of time. But I would imagine you've got to do 10 of those, 15 of those to get one night where you go and you see somebody and go, that's a two-way player for us that might have value. And that's why you do it, right? Yeah, um, you know, that's the job, right? I mean, they pay me to go to basketball games. Um, so it's, it's, it's better than having a real job for sure. Um, you know, I actually, um, a couple weeks ago or last weekend, I was at a, a St. John's game in the garden, a noon tip. And, um, Tony Ressler, our owner, uh, wanted to, wanted to go with me. He was in New York. I said, all right. So we went to the game and we're sitting there and there's like six minutes to go. He says, so when do we leave? I was like, you literally pay me to go to basketball games. I feel like if I leave early, I'm cheating you. So <laughs> we stay to the end. So, um, but you know, it, it's, I tell people the hardest part about my job sometimes is waking up at four in the morning and taking the rental car back to the airport and getting on the flight at six o'clock. Mm-hmm. And if that's the hardest part of my job, I've got nothing to complain about. Um, cause like I said, you know, growing up in rural America, you know, I had friends that lived on farms and, you know, they go feed the cattle before, you know, you get your own breakfast. So I, I know I've got a good job in it and I wouldn't change it for the world. Today's episode of the Woj Pod is brought to you by Roman. Guys are terrible at taking care of their health. Whether it's a knee injury, bad back, or something worse, guys are usually more comfortable rubbing some dirt on it than seeing a doctor. I'm guilty of it myself. I put off everything. But listen, the same is true for erectile dysfunction. Studies have shown 70% of guys who experience ED don't get treated for it. Thankfully, Roman created an easy way to get checked out by a doctor and get treated for ED online. Roman is a one-stop shop where licensed U.S. physicians can diagnose ED and ship medication right to your door. With Roman, there are no waiting rooms, awkward face-to-face conversations, or uncomfortable trips to the pharmacy. You can handle everything discreetly online. All you have to do is visit GetRoman.com slash Woj. Fill out a brief medical onboarding, chat with a doctor, and get FDA-approved ED meds delivered to your door in discreet, unmarked packaging. Guys, go online and get checked by the doctor. Erectile dysfunction is a problem that guys don't tackle. But with Roman, it's really easy, so take care of it. For a free online visit, 
Go to GetRoman.com slash Woj. That's GetRoman.com slash Woj for a free online visit. GetRoman.com slash Woj, W-O-J. In Atlanta now, the blueprint, you have this young group of Trey Young and John Collins and uh, Kevin Herter, another first-round pick last year from Maryland who's shown you know great promise already too, and you get two more picks potentially in this draft and you have cap space. And when you get it, we get into the summer right now, the teams who absolutely have the most space, it's the two teams in LA. It's the two teams in New York and the Hawks. If we do it on paper, now there's other teams who can make some moves and create it. What is the discipline or when you're trying to figure out where you are on schedule and you're trying to align guys by age and sort of, points of career and what does cap space mean when does that space become about attracting a high caliber player to fit into our core versus that space is there to take on essentially bad contracts from teams that would be attached with team would send you a, a first round pick or two seconds or maybe a bad contract with a player you kind of like who you think might have a future where they have to attach that to get you to take the money how do you know when it's time to change over? You know, um, I get asked that question a lot. Um, what we want to see from our young group, and as you mentioned, you know, John, Trey, Kevin, but, you know, we also have Amari Spellman, who we think has got a good yeah. future as a, as a stretch mm-hmm. big. Um, you know, Torian Prince going to, going to go into his third year, who, you know, starts for us as well, who's one of the best catch-and-shoot players in the league. So, so we, we like our group. Um, as we mentioned earlier, you know, the last 25, 30 games, you know, we're close to 500. So we feel like there's been some real growth with our young guys. Um, you know, having $40 million worth of cap space, um, you, you know, as well as I do, like top tier free agents want to go somewhere where they think they're going to win. So we, we look at our young group and we think, well, man, if we added a top tier free agent, we, we could be competitive in the East. Um, you know, our ownership group, from when they bought the team uh, four or five years ago, they've completely redone the new State Farm Arena. They built a beautiful new practice facility, which, you know, everyone that I talk to around the league says it's the nicest or one of the nicest, certainly, in the league. Um, you know, they've brought a G League franchise that will start playing in College Park next year uh, in a new facility. So we... Our ownership group has laid the infrastructure um, for everything that we need to be players in free agency we one of the things we wanted to do was have the financial flexibility to go out and strike when we think the time's right um so we're really pleased as you mentioned a little bit ago you know we're going to add hopefully two more top 10 picks to our, our group of young players this year um so if you're a free agent and you're looking looking around and you see the guys that we have now, uh, a couple more young guys, maybe we get lucky and jump up in the lottery this year. Um, we feel like we're positioned to be players, you know, maybe sooner than most people around the league think that we are. Um, we're very pleased with the growth of our team and where we are. You know, we, we, we took some heat this trade deadline for not making some trades with some of our veteran guys, but we feel like it's really important to keep that $40 million worth of cap space. Um, you know, whether we go out and 
get active this summer or whether it's next summer, um, you know, it's up in the air. But we, we're very pleased with where we are. We're very pleased with the growth of our young guys and having that optionality is important to us. Charles, what was your process, the organization's process, when you did the draft night deal that brought you Trey Young, Luka Doncic goes to Dallas, and obviously they send you another future first-round pick what was that process internally? And when you're up that high and there are lots of teams trying to get at you to do, whether it was for him or for others, and you're weighing how you value, you know, moving two spots isn't very far. Sometimes it's hard. You know, Philly's going to certainly regret the deal. They moved to go up two spots. And it's tricky when you're that high because it means usually it's because you just really believe strongly in one particular player and you just feel like you've got to get them. But how did that play out in your organization? You guys make a decision like that. So we felt really good about last year's draft. You know, we, we had five or six guys we would have been happy with. And, and you see that this year, right? There's been a really good rookie class. Um, and I don't want to get into the names because I don't want to get in trouble, but you know, we all know who they are, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. Um, it's been, it's been a good class. So Jerry so, Jackson, Luka Doncic, yeah, I can say, yeah, right you can say, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Trey Young. Yeah. No. Um, so we felt like going back a couple spots, we were still going to get a player we really liked. Um, one of the things, that we had said all along is it's going to take a, another first round pick. Um, you know, not a lot of people know this, but we, we will, if we would have stayed at three, we would have taken Luca. Um, we had worked with his agent. He had did a physical for us that morning in New York. Um, I was on the phone with Bill Duffy, his agent, and, you know, telling mm-hmm. him our press conference was going to be Monday and Bill was ecstatic because Phoenix was going to do their Friday and he had Aiton as well. So mm-hmm, he's going right. to be able to do both, both press conferences. Um, but then Dallas came in, um, an hour or so before the draft and, you know, I told them all along that it would take another lottery pick for us to, to slide back. And that's when the conversations, um, got started. But for us, what made it make sense is um, our analytics staff had, was projecting Dallas to finish eighth this year, and you know right now I think they're tenth. Mm-hmm. So that I give those guys a lot of credit for being pretty pretty on top of it. Right. Um, so to be able to add you know two lottery picks this year with a player uh, ended up being Trey, who we're extremely excited about, and he's had a great rookie season. Um, that made sense to us, you know. I I've always taken the strategy with the draft is uh, use a baseball analogy. The more swings you get, the more chances you have to get a hit. Um, so to be able to take one lottery pick and essentially turn it into two, that made sense for us. What's been for you guys the most important thing for Trey? When you think of one or two things that hey, listen, you've got to understand, you've got to get better at to play this position to lead our team. And how he's responded to that. What's been the messaging to him and his growth? I think there's a couple things that uh, we constantly have been on him about. One is the defensive effort. You know, that was a big knock on him coming out of uh, Oklahoma was just the, the lack of intensity on the defensive end. He's obviously um, on the slight side. Um, so just not he's done a, a much better job of the first effort. But, you know, now – as a point guard, you know, you come down a lot of times there's pick and roll. Okay, that's the first effort. And then it's the second effort, maybe going off the next action, whether it's a pin down or, you know, whatever the case may be. It's just playing hard for 24 seconds. That's been a, a big focus on, you know, the defensive side of things. And then the offensive side of things, you know, Trey's a kid 
who obviously led the country in scoring last year, but he scored a ton in high school too. You know, he kind of identified as a scorer, and he certainly can score. But playing in the NBA now, you're not playing high school basketball in Norman, Oklahoma, or you're not on a you know a college team in, in Norman. You're out there with four other guys that are really skilled basketball players now. And we've felt from day one, his greatest strength was his passing ability, yeah. his ability to pass with, you know, both hands, left and right yeah. hands, put it on the number, uh, the ability to read pick and rolls at such a young age and see plays develop. And, honestly have the courage to make some of the passes i couldn't tell you how many times this year he's thrown a pass between people's legs like he just he he sees things um and then he's got the courage to actually try them so what we really liked about him was you know as we continue to put talent around him his ability to be able to make plays to make other players better uh, was a, something we really liked and we stretched to him about not identifying as a scorer as much you know he's going to score just because he has the balls in his hands and he can he can make plays but really identifying as a playmaker someone that other guys are going to want to come play with because they know if they get open they're going to get the ball right and and that's and you just said it i think that's got to be for him you can't do anything as an organization if guys don't want to play with that player. And I think, I think like initially in summer league, and I'm always made always a lot, a lot of rash judgments made on players in four games, five games of summer league. But but you could see that process with him of of not trying to do too much. And I think with Trey sometimes is, you know, people there's an expectation of this. He had a bent for the spectacular, and there was a stretch at Oklahoma, especially early in the year where it was a show and everybody. It was all Trey all the time, the way it's all Zion Williamson all the time now. And so I guess that's a process at that position, right, of like these guys have to want to play with you. And like you said, and I remember you saying it to me on draft night after you guys selected him was it was the passing. And you said right-handed, left-handed, and like we know he can score. He's got that ability. It's a lot easier to sell a guy on evolving his game when you know he, he does that really well. Yeah, no, and then that's part of not just with Trey, but every point guard, right? Is getting other guys involved, getting and everyone else going in the game, and then late or whenever the point might be, where when we need a bucket, coming up and getting that bucket because you know you can. Um, you know, we we signed Alex Lynn this summer, and you know one of the big reasons why Alex wanted to come to us, he's like, I, I want to play with a point guard like Trey. You know, Trey gets our big guys rolling to the rim. You know, four or five baskets ignite um, that you know they probably wouldn't normally get because he's got the ability to make those passes and get it to him. Um, you know, you've got to stay, you've got to stay ready when he's got the ball in his hands because he he can fling it at any time with either hand, and <laughs> if you're open, he'll find you. What's the balance, Travis? And we, we talk about it more than ever, I think, in the league now, small market versus big market, destination free agency versus places that may not ever be able to lure, you know, the A-list guys. What's the responsibility when you're – Atlanta's had some great teams. I mean, you go back and has had, you know, consistent playoff teams, upper echelon Eastern Conference teams – Going back a long way, back to Dominique Wilkins and then the next iteration, you know, in the 90s and Danny Ferry, Mike Budenholzer, and you came in at the tail end of that run. When you start to think about new arena and practice facilities at a city of the South that players spend time in in the off season, it's a popular city with players where you say, is there a pathway for us to be 
listen, you can't make yourself L.A. There's no beach there. There's no, it's not New York. But do you say there's a pathway for us to run this the right way and have all these other amenities that make it more than it's been in the past? Well, for sure. Um, listen, I've lived in Atlanta now for, you know, a year and a half and I, I can tell you it's a great city. Um, we have, as you mentioned, all the, the infrastructure, but in years past, you know, I would go in there as a, a visiting team, you know, and you would look at this big wall of suites and the building would be half full maybe. Um, so as a visiting team coach or player, you go in there, it doesn't seem like, like a great place. Um, now with the new arena, you know, we're averaging, you know, 13,000 a night or something like that. Uh, the city's excited about our young group. Um, you know, we've got the new practice facility. Um, but as we mentioned, guys want to go where they think they can win. Um, you know, when I started in Golden State, no one ever thought Golden State is a destination market either. Um, the year that we went to the second round of the playoffs, uh, you know, when Andre decided he wanted to come, mm-hmm. he wanted to come to play with Steph, to mm-hmm. play with Clay. Um, and I think that's ultimately what we're going to have to do in Atlanta is we're going to have to put together a young core, maybe show some success uh, in the playoffs. Uh, to have a marquee guy come to us, but the city itself, um, you know, it, it's a great city. As you mentioned, a lot of players live there during the off season. Um, it's, it's one of the f- fastest growing cities in the country. Six million people. Now there's going to be 8 million people there in the next five years. Um, there's more movies and TV shows shot in, in Georgia than LA now. Um, it, it's got a lot going for it as we develop downtown. Um, you know, they're going to redo the gulch and, and make it like an LA live. It's, it's going to be, it's going to be really spectacular. And, you know, I think this, the city's excited about it. There people that watch a lot of NBA, obviously yourself included, you know, I get hit all the time either from riders or guys from other teams. Like they're excited about it. Um, you know, they, they see what we're trying to build. Um, and they feel like we're, we are a little ahead of schedule. Yeah. I think like, I think Zach Lowe would always call it right. Like those sort of, underrated league pass teams where you go, yeah, Atlanta's in a rebuild. I'm not going to, and then you say, oh, wait a minute. Actually, no, they're fun to watch. They're scoring a lot of points. They're beating good teams at home. They, you've become, you know, really especially formidable at home. You know, the Kings sort of started to do it in the last year, like early in the year, you're going, I don't think this is going to last. And then it's like, no, it's last. And all of a sudden a couple of young players become these guys you want to watch. And, and that's happened. And, and then there's like the whole Vince Carter thing, which has been, remarkable and and I I don't know if any of us appreciate it enough you're seeing it every day of what he's doing especially in his position where you just don't see it you had a thought process of why you wanted Vince around and it's played out how in reality you know I didn't know Vince before we signed him you know I'd, I'd heard all the stuff of you know from when he was in Memphis and obviously Sacramento uh, how he's great with the young guys um, and I, and I got to tell you, uh, he's exceeded every expectation on that front. You know, his, his first day in, in September, he walked up to LP and myself and he said, who do you want me to talk to? And what do you want me to tell him? <laughs> like the, he, he just completely accepts the role of being a mentor. And, you know, 
for our guys, you know, 20, 21 year old kids, like they looked up to Vince, they wore his shoes, they had his posters on the wall. So here's this guy is, um, you know, has been in the league. He, he was drafted the same year Trey and Kevin were born. Like it's amazing. <laughs> like he half man, half amazing. It, that's true. Like he, what he does on the court still today is a 41 year old guy is unbelievable, but the type of person he is, is, is off the charts. He's just one of the best people I've ever been around. And that's so important, you know, going through this with a bunch of young guys, having veterans in your locker room that can teach these guys, obviously all the tricks on the court, but all the other stuff off the court to be good pros, to be good members of the community. And that's such a big reason why we brought him in. Uh, it's a big reason why we brought Jeremy 